Anybody here ever been to the Boston Public Library? See your hands. I'm sure we live in Boston. Surely somebody's been to the library. Um, I'm talking about the, the old one, you know, right next to Copley Square. You know what I'm talking about? Thumbs up. Um, if you haven't been there, you should go. Um, I say that because uh, there's some paintings in the old section, you know, as you're coming out of Copley, straight across from the beautiful Trinity Church on the other side, go in the front doors, walk all the way up those stairs. Um, has anyone ever been to the top where I'm talking about? One, maybe a couple people. Well, now that I've made you intrigued at what's up there, um, you should certainly go. So there's an there's a artist named John Singer Sargent um, who has uh, several paintings that are up there. They're up on the top of the wall and even along the sides of the wall. And I bring them up because uh, I've been there a handful of times, and it's probably my favorite place in Boston to go to. I'm serious. Um, it's pretty, pretty cool. The paintings up there are all about the biblical storyline. And I think even the name of the, uh, the whole array, his whole collection of paintings up there is called The Triumph of Religion. And what you'll see up there is you'll look on one side and it's covered with these depictions, these like very vivid paintings of the pagan gods of the Old Testament. And so you'll see this massive golden calf. And you'll see another pagan god. Kind of looks like, a, like an eerie woman kind of figure. It's very odd, but I think it's, it's actually meant to make you feel kind of eerie. It's evocative. It's supposed to make you feel some kind of emotion towards these gods. And so they're in there. Um, underneath them, you have a depiction of the prophets in the Old Testament. Some of them are looking up, kind of shielding themselves from these pagan gods that are above them. And if you walk across to the other side, it's like you do a complete 180, both with your body and with your mind, because you turn around, there's this depiction of redemption. You have this, um, this picture, some kind of a depiction of the Trinity. You have the cross over there, and there's a sense of awe and glory, even at looking at what this depiction of God is like. And along the sidewalls, between each or either side, you have uh, different things. So along one of the sidewalls, you have different pictures. So on one side, you have a depiction of hell. The other side, you have a depiction of heaven. And right in the middle is a depiction of judgment. And as you're looking at each of these things, hell is horrendous. As you look at heaven, it's like, wow, that's a picture that I would like to be in. And judgment is, it's got the scales. Okay, you go around to the other side, um, it has a little bit of the biblical storyline. So then you have uh, a depiction of Israel's oppression in Egypt, and then you have a depiction of the law, and then the messianic era, where you see this young figure stepping up into his role as the savior of the world. Um, you should really go and see it. It's pretty cool, especially if you like art. I'm not even like an art person, but I can appreciate it, so certainly you can appreciate it too. Next time you're in Boston, make sure you stop by there. But I think you have to go before 5 o'clock, so don't miss the, cl the cutoff date. You should really go and see it. I think art helps to evoke some kind of response in us that other things don't in a certain kind of way. Um, there's an author of a novel called uh, Pillars of the Earth. It's this long novel. It's about several characters, and I think there's a lot of cathedrals in it. I personally haven't read it, but I picked out this quote that I think kind of gets at the essence of what I'm speaking about looking at these paintings. He's talking about cathedrals here, and he said, the way to appreciate a cathedral is to stand alone in the nave. That's like the big central portion of a cathedral, like a medieval cathedral. We think of massive church building, you know, huge, pointing you upwards to the God that they're supposed to be proclaiming, right? So he says, stand there alone in the nave, right in the middle. And the building there is, is designed to uplift the soul. It's calculated to make the person feel insignificant. And if he is any judge at all of architecture, he'll feel humbled but not crushed. He will feel fear, but not terror. The vast size of the place will make him feel puny, but not contemptible. There's something about looking at these majestic buildings, at these amazing works of art, sometimes even songs, lyrics in a song, 
that just evoke a response inside of you. And so that is what I feel. As we come into this passage this morning, into the Psalms, we need to feel this. In our lives, we need to feel a weightiness about life. You know, art forms like majestic paintings and exalted cathedrals, even songs, they're meant to evoke this kind of response in us. Now we're going to do, we're going to try to do that today. We're trying to go about this weighty task uh, by going through a song this morning. Now the way that I selected this psalm, because we haven't been going through the psalms, I just kind of selected a psalm. Um, I was reading through the psalms. Here's how I picked it. It's not mysterious at all. I was reading until I said, wow. I was reading the psalms until I found something that just made me go, wow, look at what I'm reading here. Now, I suspect Psalm 18 is not the first psalm that would make some of you wow. Maybe I was just familiar with some of the others. Um, but I think there's a good reason why there's a sense of awe. There's a sense of weightiness as we go to this text. Now, I think this sermon, and even as we look at this psalm, will actually tie pretty well into some more recent sermons that we've had on corporate worship and what it means for our church to sing God's praises together. Um, Dane has preached the past two sermons uh, specifically on what it means for our church to sing well together. And he's looked at that through a couple different sermons. Now, I'm not directly focused on that, but I think there's a lot of application in this psalm that will help us as a church know what exactly we're doing as we sing. So when you sing, do you feel the sense of weightiness of the thing that you're singing about? Like you would look at a cathedral or like if you would look at um, a beautiful piece of art. So here we are, Psalm 18. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have one around you. Um, we have several hardback black ones. Uh, if you do, I invite you to, to make your way over there, Psalm 18. It's on page uh, 454. Uh, now, if you're visiting with us, you're new to the Bible, and you don't actually have a copy of the Bible, uh, we love to give those away. And so in our lobby, there's several hardback black Bibles that we invite you to just take. If you have a friend who needs a Bible, also take one of those. Um, we'd love for them to be able to engage with God's Word as well. So go ahead and turn over there to Psalm 18. Uh, now as you're going there, um, I just want to say just a couple things about Psalm 18 and what specifically it's about. So Psalm 18, like I said several times, is a song, but it's a particularly epic song. It's an epic song because it's about all of God's victories. So like me, if you're like me, you like sports. And you say, oh, that was an epic touchdown. Or, oh, that was an epic throw that that guy made last fall. Because football season hasn't started yet. Um, these kind of epic things are kind of temporary. But this is actually epic. It's a song about God's victories. But specifically, as we'll see, it's a psalm of David. We'll see that in the superscript. Um, but it's not simply a description of what God has done in the past. David is taking what God has done in the past, and he's looking at his own experience, and he interprets God's past actions according to, he's interpreting his own experiences through God's past actions. Okay, did that make sense? He's interpreting his own experience through God's past actions. That's a good point, because I think that's worth applying to your life even now. As you think about your own life, your own experiences, how do you interpret them? It's best to do so by thinking through God's past actions, his past promises, even things that he's done in the past, you're included in these things. So as you're interpreting your own life, you can do the very same thing that David is doing here in this psalm. See, the psalm is a little bit like the upper room in the Boston Public Library or a medieval uh, cathedral. You're meant to sit with it. You're meant to look at it and study it. You're meant to look around at its parts and see if you can find something interesting in that painting or that song or that building. You're meant to mine out the significance that's there. You're meant to meditate on it and even respond appropriately to it. After you experience these things, it does something in you to do something with it. And I'm hoping that we can do that together today. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give us a flyover of this passage. Now, this psalm has a discernible pattern, a discernible structure with some understandable parts. Um, now, I'm going to draw out what I see as the main idea of each of these parts, and I'll try to make those very clear to you. But then I'm going to drive down at some details here in the text. 
And so I'm going to read certain chunks of this, and we'll stop at that chunk. We're going to look back at it. So does that sound like a good plan to you? Now, I'm going to do this, and if you've already turned there, you're going to see that this is 50 verses long. I'm doing this to spare you. Some of you are like, oh, that's awesome. Let's look at all the details of 50 verses. We would be here for a couple hours, which I think would be awesome, but some of you would be already hitting snooze in your comfy seats that you're in. And so I'm going to be merciful, but I still want us to get our minds around the big idea of what's happening here in Psalm 18. Here's the big idea of all of it. I had to put it under one heading. The Lord greatly saves his people from their enemies. The Lord greatly saves his people from their enemies. And each part of this psalm will add its own flavor to what is going on in that idea of God's saving work. So let's look down at this passage. Psalm 18, we're going to start with a superscript, and I'm just going to read the first six verses here. Because uh, they kind of get, they get us in the, into the setting of what's actually going on here in Psalm 18. So I invite you to go there with me. I'm going to start here with the superscript. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when, he, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Let's pause there. This is the first section. I'm going to give a one-word title to each of these sections. This section, I'm going to title Distress. Distress. And you can see where I get that heading if you just read the beginning of verse 6. You see this is the place that David has found himself. It's the initial setting of the rest of this psalm and what's going to come afterward. David is deeply distressed. He's suffering. He's in anguish. He's anxious. He's feeling quite literally the depths of evil. It's as if you're looking at the picture of hell on the wall. And you have an experience of what that's like. We see that here in this section. Well, in this initial section, you can see some different parts. You see the superscript, you see some introductory words, and then you see the state that David is in. So I'm going to take each of these parts, just say a few things about them. Let's look at the superscript. Some of you might, know, might need to know, um, in the Psalms as you're reading these in your Bible, these are actually in the original text. So as you read these Psalms, don't just jump in your English Bibles to verse 1. The superscript is actually there, written by the original author, and they actually help you interpret what happens in the psalm. So don't jump over them. We're not going to right now. I'm going to highlight just a couple things from it. So look, first there in the superscript, you see you have the author, you have the descriptor of the author, and then you have somewhat of a setting. So the first thing I want to look at is the descriptor. Look at what David calls himself there. Can you see it? He says, the servant of the Lord. So when David is writing this, he's writing it with his own hands, he calls himself the servant of the Lord. Now, it's kind of interesting why he would title himself this way, because this isn't just a normal title that anyone would just take on themselves. Why, you ask Dylan? Well, the Old Testament authors only use this for two other characters, and they're quite significant characters. The first one is Moses. The second one is Joshua. And the third one is David, which we see here. It's given to Moses many times, but you should know it's only given to Moses at the end of his life. Only at the end of his life could the author look back at Moses and title him the servant of the Lord. This is a weighty title. Moses was a significant figure in the Old Testament, and he was given this title, but only at his death. Likewise, it's only given to Joshua, but only at the end of Deuteronomy or sorry, only at the end of Joshua and at the beginning of Judges when Joshua is talking about 
his own death, or other people are writing about Joshua's death. And you think about these characters. Moses used powerfully in the hand of God to save Israel out of oppression from Egypt, right? And then you think about Joshua, the man that was entrusted by God to go into the promised land and to receive many promises of the Lord. These are significant figures in the Old Testament storyline, and David is putting himself in that same place as them. This is a significant title. And I think as a result of those things, this probably means that David is near the end of his life. Now, I have a couple reasons why I would say that. First is because all these other authors did so, or the, all these other characters did so at the end of their life. But also look there, it says, um, at the end of the subscript, it says that he's delivered from the hand of all his enemies. Interesting. He no longer has any enemies. They've all been conquered. He's been delivered from all of them. I also want to note something else about Psalm, something else about Psalm 18. If you're familiar with the books 1 and 2 Samuel, and you've read them at all recently, I'm assuming that's not many of us, but you might have, you're going to find Psalm 18 almost verbatim in 2 Samuel chapter 22. That's the very end of 2 Samuel. So it's interesting. You look back at the end of 2 Samuel, and you see Psalm 18 just inserted there. Now, I think that it's probably likely that this psalm was selected by the author of Samuel to be a fitting conclusion to the end of his book. And so there's some significance here about the placement of this psalm. This is the end of David's life. And I think what it's doing is giving us somewhat of a poetic summary of David's life. So we can take the sections of this psalm and we get a pretty good understanding about how David evaluated his own life. It's helpful and instructive. Lastly, I just want to note that this psalm was meant to be sung by the people of God. It's included in the Psalms for that very reason. And so we have the early hymn book of the Old Testament Christians. They would go to this psalm and they would be able to sing it. So it's personal in that it was written by David, but it's corporate in the sense that it was sung by the people of God. So it's not just personal, it's also corporate. Therefore, it stands to reason that Israel should be expected to experience the same type of things that David went through they themselves would experience similar waves and moves in their life that David himself experienced. And David even expected them to experience these things. Now, for Christians, I think this is true too. We can interpret our lives through the things that happen in Scripture. Remember I said that earlier. We can do this too. The types of ways that God saved his people in the past are not unlike the ways that he saves his people today. Okay, superscript. Let's go on to the introductory remarks here, verses 1 through 3. If you just glance down through there, you'll see 1 through 3. It's just like he explodes with titles for God. You see that there? He says, God, you are my strength. You are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my shield, my horn of salvation. He says all of these things, and he's given God just this explosion of praise related to the things that he has done. He gives them a title based on his actions. And so when David saw himself as being protected by God, he thought of God as a shield. God has shielded David from the fiery weapons of the evil one. So he, see God, he sees God as a shield. But you look at all these things, this, this rock, this fortress, this strength, these are all words that are meant to be something like solidity or like re reliability or protection. These are all things that are solid. You can actually hold on to these things and they're not going to move. God is solid. He's reliable. He's protective over his people. We're going to see that in the rest of the psalm. But significantly here, I want to highlight something at the beginning of the psalm, and it's the state that David's in. We see that in verses 4 through 6. And I've labeled this, this section distress because of what we read here in the text. <clears throat> we saw that at the top of verse 6 there. And verse 4 and 5 show us why. Why is David in distress? Look down there at verse 4 and 5. I want to read these again and see why we can label this distress. <clears throat> verse 4, the cords of death encompassed me. What do you think that's supposed to evoke in you? The cords of death encompassing you. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death 
confronted me. Notice what the enemies are here. You see them there. We've got death, destruction, Sheol. Uh, probably more understandable to us is to understand these labels as death. We understand that. The demonic and hell. See, destruction here, you look at the original language, it's Belial. This is often associated with the enemies of God or even the demonic. Uh, Sheol here is a dark and gloomy underworld type of place. So these things, these enemies, this devil, this death, this place of gloomy darkness are what have encompassed him. Look at what they're doing. They're encompassing him. They're assailing him. They're entangling him. They're confronting him. So we could say that he's surrounded. David is attacked. He's twisted up. He's challenged. Now, at this point in the text, I think it's very clear for us to see that we need to be very clear in our own minds about who our enemy is. We also, like David, need to know who our enemy is. We must not forget this. Our enemies are none other than the enemies that are described here in this passage. You see here, death is ever-present to squelch out life. Satan is ever-active to attack and ensnare us. Hell is ever-ready to get us twisted up in the things of this world. So don't be caught off guard by it. It's the same today. So we can be certain, friends, in the midst of your arguments with your faithful and believing husband or wife, they are not the enemy. And the difficulties of life together in the local church, it's not your faithful brother and sister in Christ who is the enemy. In the midst of your own anxieties, when you're overwhelmed about your own issues, your own problems, you yourself are not the enemy. Be ever mindful about who your enemy is and be ever diligent to fight against him. So don't be confused about who your enemy is. It's these very things. But let's also be sure to recognize. Look at what David does with these enemies. How does he respond? Before we get there, I want to say something. Before God saves his people, I said my main idea is God saves his people from his enemies. Before God saves his people, sometimes he allows them to experience their enemies first. God might allow you to experience these enemies before he saves you. And even after he saves you, it's not as if the reality of death goes away. It's not as if Satan just stops trying to tempt you. These things don't just go away, but in fact, God is using them. He's using them not to destroy you. See, Satan and demons and anything demonic, hellish, they're all on a leash. And they can do nothing apart from God's power to control them. You understand that? So know your enemy, but don't be surprised when those kinds of things happen. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And then Peter says, but don't despair as a result of that, but rejoice insofar as you find yourself sharing in Christ's sufferings. So you can, in fact, rejoice in the fact that God is bringing you to these things. But that doesn't put off the fact that sometimes they do leave us distressed and they leave David distressed. But what does David do with his distress? Like I started to say earlier, how does David fight back? Look what he says there in verse 6. He called upon the Lord. He cried out to his God for help. So then, my question for you, brothers and sisters, what do you do in your distress? This psalm gives us a very accessible weapon of warfare to use. We can pray. We can pray to our God who's ever with us. So we, likewise, can call upon our God, and he will be faithful and diligent to help us. And here in the text, we see what happened. Look at what God did. How did he respond there at the end of verse 6? We see that he heard my voice. We see that the cry reached his ears. And so my question for you, do you know that God hears your prayers? Let's keep reading. How is God going to respond? How is he going to respond to this request, the situation that David finds himself in? We'll start in verse 7 and continue on. 
It says, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherubim and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. Now, don't tune out while I'm reading this. This is significant. This is the section that made me go, wow, look at what God's doing. Continuing on in verse 11. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent, the, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now let's pause here. The title of this section, Rescue. Rescue. Now, rescue is not hard to find on this passage, but what's unmistakable, what's unmistakable in this section is who is the one that is doing the rescuing? That God has heard the prayers of David, and God is mightily responding to that prayer. Just look down at this section. It's pretty amazing. Look at the types of things that David uses to describe God's response. You see things like an earthquake. You see things that's kind of like a flaming dragon. You see God kind of surfing in the heavens with darkness being under his feet. You see him flying on heavenly beasts. You see him covered in storm clouds. What about bringing a hailstorm of fiery coals? His voice thunders from the heavens. Now, what kind of God do you think David is describing? A weak, puny God who doesn't listen to his prayers. I think that is completely out of question. Look at the God that he's describing. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake, but they're not fun. I've only experienced like a little bit of one, and it terrified me enough. Shook a little bit under my feet. I know they're terrifying. Um, I've lived in an area in the country where there's a lot of tornadoes and hailstorms, and you know if you've seen these things, they're nothing to be messed with. Hail and thunderstorms, tornadoes going along, they're not something to rejoice in. In fact, these are the kinds of things that we hide from and we huddle away into a bathtub to run away from. And yet, these are the very same things that David is using to describe God and his rescue of him. I want to know if you notice something else in here. Did you notice some Exodus language? Did you pick up on that? David describes God's response to him, his rescue in the same terms that are used in the Exodus. Remember, we talked about Moses earlier. Remember, God descended on Mount Sinai when he's delivering the law to them. And he did so in Exodus 19 in the shake of an earthquake. Thick darkness covered the mountain in Exodus chapter 20 when the people of Israel were looking on the mountain. They couldn't even approach it. It was covered in darkness. Notice the blast of his anger out of his nostrils. That's how God defeated the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 15, when they're singing God's praises after this, they're looking back and they describe it as if, as if God has just poured out fiery anger out of his nostrils. God is much bigger than we suspect that he is. Cherubim here were golden statues in the tabernacle. They're meant to cover the ark of God's presence. So you remember the last half of Exodus is all about this place where God is going to dwell among his people. But they did not have access to it. Only the high priest had access to that section, but only once a year. This is a holy place, and God is riding on this cherubim. And did you notice one last thing? Verse 16. It says that David is applying this to his life, that he drew me out of many waters. Who was drawn out of water 
and the Exodus. Moses was drawn out of water. His name literally means drawn out of water. And Moses' experience is the same as David's experience, is the same as our experience if we have been saved in the way that they have. When we place our faith and hope in Jesus, this is exactly how God responds. He moves the world. He moves all things in creation so that you can be part of his family. That's what he does when he responds to you, when you respond to him with faith, I should say, rather. And so I think the big application in this section is to just look at and ponder the wonderful works of God. How often do we just skip over that? We try to look for something to just apply to our lives that's practical, but how often do we just slow down enough to consider and look and meditate on the power of God? I mean, look at these titles. What would that do in you? I think it would cause you to revel in the rescue that God provides. In the works of the enemy to entangle you, to attack you, to destroy you, our God takes all of those schemes and he obliterates them. He obliterates every cord, every weapon, every ability that these weapons of darkness have against you. God is powerful, and we can revel in these things. So how does God rescue his people? Mightily, we might could say. But why? Why would God act so powerfully towards his people? Well, let's keep looking on. We'll pick up again in verse 20. Look with me there. David says, "'The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness.'" According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Title of this section, righteousness, righteousness. So we've seen distress. We've seen God's mighty response to his people. And now we're seeing righteousness. Now this section answers the question, why would God respond, respond in such a way as he does in verses 17 through 19? Those wow sections, these big parts of God responding, why would he respond this way? Well, the section is in two parts. The first is about David's righteousness, as you see, and the second part is about the Lord's righteousness, God's own integrity, his own, um, he might I could say his own perfection. Uh, these sections are about David's character and about Yahweh's character. Now, even as I read these, and I wonder if you had the same kind of experience as me, when you read verses 20 through 24, they're kind of confusing, didn't you think? As you read through these things, I mean, can David really say, as he does here, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands? Can you say that? The Lord has dealt with me according to my goodness. I have been so good. I deserve all the things that God has given me. Is that what David's saying? Stands the question. Interesting. Is David somehow describing his own works righteousness as if he has gained approval into God by his works, that somehow he is without sin and deserves God's rewards? Now, I don't know if you felt that way, but I certainly did as I read it, and I was like, what's going on here? And I think it's these kinds of questions. Um, just recently, I took a trip to the beach, and I read uh, C.S. Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms. And C.S. Lewis himself was troubled by things like this in the Psalms. He seems to think, and many others, do, others too, think the psalmists have actually overstepped themselves. They've gone beyond what is actually happening. Well, I don't think the things that I just questioned are actually going on here. I don't think David actually sees himself as sinless. He's not been perfect. He hasn't applied that to his life. He talked about that with God. 
But David would have been well acquainted with his sin. Um, you remember in First and Second Samuel how I mentioned earlier this psalm is introduced right at the end of the psalm. Well, First and Second Samuel are no strangers to David's sins. They describe in detail that he committed adultery. David murdered another man. He became prideful over his own possessions. See, David certainly wasn't perfect. He knew himself that he wasn't perfect, and he didn't claim to have that kind of righteousness. And then secondly, David wrote other psalms in the Psalter. One of those is Psalm 32. And uh, let's see here in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And so David, according to that psalm, recognizes that he has sin. David knew he was sinful. But that still holds out the question, how can David claim to have this kind of righteousness? Well, I think the answer is it's not because of his perfection, but because of God's abundant forgiveness. As David says in Psalm 32, verse 1, the same psalm that I just quoted, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The Lord has forgiven David's sins. He has covered them. He no longer counts David's sins against him. Now, what David is claiming here is not a perfection in his character, but a relative righteousness compared to his enemies. But more significantly, David is claiming a righteous standing before God on the basis of something outside of himself. The brothers and sisters, this could be not more true of us today. We do not come to God expecting his blessings on the basis of our perfection, but on the basis of Jesus' perfection. Amen? We do not claim to be sinless. But we do claim to be righteous if and only if Jesus' righteousness is applied to us. That's what it means to be saved. This is our beloved doctrine, friends, of justification by faith. This is what God does. He declares us right, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of Jesus' actions for us that are applied to us by faith. That's how he saves us, not on the basis of our perfection, See, that's true about you. Your works don't earn your favor to God, but Jesus' do. Your works don't allow you into his presence, but Jesus' does. So if you have believed in him by faith today, if that's you, surely you also can plead with God on the basis, not of your perfection, but on the basis of Jesus' perfection. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see filthy, messed up, sinful you any longer he sees you in the perfectly clothed righteousness of his son, Jesus. And that is something to sing about, to be rejoiced in, right? This is amazing stuff. So at this point, it becomes clear that David is really saying something beyond what he himself is able to accomplish. This psalm is saying more about David than he can say. He's conscious that he himself is playing a role for something else, someone else. He knows his role in God's redemptive plan. You remember David was given a promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12, God came to David and he gave him this promise. He said, I'm going to raise for you an offspring. And it's this offspring through your flesh that I'm going to establish a kingdom. See, certainly David knew that he was anticipating one to come. David was anticipating one who would be perfectly righteous who would experience the ultimate response of God to be raised from the dead and to triumph over his enemies. He's going to triumph over death, Satan, and hell, finally and decisively. That's what God's going to do, not through David specifically, but through his offspring, Jesus, who's going to come. What David could only apply to himself in part, Jesus could apply to himself completely. He actually can say, my righteousness so when Jesus prays on behalf of you and all of your messed up words when you're, when you're praying to him, you can be confident that Jesus wipes over all of those and he says, I've made this person righteous. And that is an amazing truth. I'd like to highlight one more thing here uh, in this section. In verse 26, we see something about the character of God. Look down there with me. Um, I think it's easy to understand that God is merciful. 
that God is blameless and pure. But what about that part of the end of verse 26? Look at what David says there. He says, with the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. Now what's David doing? David is speaking about those whose character are out of step with God. So we can, you know what I'm saying, right? You can look at this and see God is responding purity for purity. He's saying, I, I can see your character is trying to, to follow me, and so I'm going to respond to you in like kind. I'm going to show you this kind of favor. But to a different kind of person, this crooked person, it says God doesn't seem pure. He doesn't seem good, maybe even. It says he makes himself seem tortuous. This is to the person that has a crooked character, and their character is out of step with God. They're crooked. They're twisted. They're out of shape. They're not responding to God's word as they ought to. And to those kinds of people, David is saying that God seems tortuous. Now, I'm not as sophisticated as some of you, but I looked up this term in the dictionary because I wasn't quite sure what that meant. Tortuous means full of twists and turns, or it could mean something like excessively lengthy and complex. So likely, for some of you here today, God may seem this way. Your life may seem like a bunch of twists and turns. God may seem to you lengthy and complex. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who see um, like the the, the heavy nature of God. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who sees God as foolish. You look at God and you can't think of anything more foolish to think about in your life. In your pride, you have set yourself up as a judge over God rather than, rather than allowing God to be a judge over you. Now, friends, this verse is a warning, and it's a warning specifically of someone who fits the bill. Verse 27 says that God brings down the haughty. Those who see themselves as superior, those who look on themselves as impressive and look on God with disdain. And the word of the Lord says the end does not look bright for you. Rather, it looks quite dark. And I plead with you this morning, if that's you, that you would come to your senses, that you would see God as he truly is, you would come to the end of yourself. And all you must do is lay down your pride, your sense of superiority over God, and recognize and acknowledge your sinfulness, your accountability to this God. And you know what? He's not as tortuous as he might seem to you. He's actually ready and willing to give you full forgiveness. But only if you're willing to put apart your own pride and recognize God for who he is. Don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until it's too late to do that. The text leads us to ask another question. What about the enemy? What happens to them? Let's keep on looking. Verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And he set me, on the, set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They asked for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Ending in verse 45, we have a section that I'm going to entitle Victory. Victory. As we've already seen, this psalm is about more than David. 
It certainly is. And I think it's only right to read this psalm as best understood as coming out of the mouth of the promised Messiah who is to come. The Davidic king who is to rule over all. He, in fact, is the victorious one. As God said, as God saved Israel in the Red Sea, like we talked about with, in Exodus, they had been there for 400 years under oppressive slavery. You know what they sang? They sang, our God is a warrior. He looked on those enemies, and he completely and finally destroyed them. Now, like them, we can sing the same song. Our God is a warrior. Our God destroys all of his enemies. We can sing this and not hesitate to say it because we serve the triumphant one, the one who's going to finally rule over everything that burdens you, over everything that is oppressing you. God is finally and fully going to triumph. So we should sing this joyfully, loudly, wonderfully when we do sing of it. God is victorious. I want to highlight just a simple progression here in this section. From verse 30 to 36, we see that the king is equipped. He's equipped for this task to do it. Then from verse 37 to 42, we see that out of his equipping, he's actually going and crushing the enemy. And then in verse 43 to 45, we see this king. After he's crushed his enemy, he's enthroned. And did you notice what his title was? He's enthroned as the head of the nations. That's his title. So I want to highlight this. This crushing and this enthronement are especially significant. So briefly here, look at verse 38. I'm going to show you where I get this from. Where the king is said to have thrust them through. You see that there in our English Standard Version. In other contexts, this same term, it's a singular term. In other places, it's translated as shatter or crush. Now, why is this important? Because this is the very same term that's used many other times in these other contexts to describe what's going to happen to the serpent. This is a promise that was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God promised that the offspring of the woman was finally and fully going to crush the head of the serpent. That's what's going on here. And so we don't have to wonder who this offspring is today do we? He's finally been crushed. And then look at verse 43. This king is enthroned as something. I made sure to note that he was noted, he was entitled the head of the nations. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wonder about this one either. As Dane preached last Sunday, at the end of time, Revelation says, after this, I looked and behold, there was a great multitude like no other. No one can number them. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their, cell, in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on his throne, and to the Lamb. This King Lamb, this Jesus that they're praising, is the head of the nations. He is victorious. So then, how should we respond? Let's finish it up. Verse 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation who gives me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the, hand, from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. The last title here is praise. It's abundantly clear. Praise. Where death was triumphing as our enemy, note past tense, was triumphing as our enemy, the Lord lives presently, now and forever. Notice he calls this a great salvation. This is a great salvation that, God's off, that God offers. And I'm not quite sure that I could overemphasize the last phrase here, his offspring. That's the seed. So it's not foreign to the text to see Genesis 3 actually happening. This offspring is going to finally and fully reign forever. That's what we're anticipating. Christians, that's what we're anticipating, this king to come and finally rule and reign forever. Now, in light of this psalm, I have a quote and it shows how Jesus himself fulfills a lot of things that happen in this psalm. Listen to this. 
and allow your heart to be enthralled at who Jesus is. It says, whereas David was threatened by the powers of death, Belial and Sheol, those, po- those powers actually got their cords and snares on Jesus, who died and was buried. Whereas the earthquake that accompanied Yahweh's intervention on David's behalf was metaphorical, earthquakes accompanied the death and resurrection of Jesus, you remember, on the cross. Whereas David spoke metaphorically of his deliverance in Exodus and conquest terms, those events found their fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Whereas David began to complete the conquest of the land only to be hampered by his own sin, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus himself is this triumphant king, and he's the one that we've come to worship today. We can praise him. If Psalm 18 wowed me enough to want to preach a sermon on it, surely the reality of this applied to the work of Jesus is enough to wow us for all eternity, I would hope. And so, across history, we've been making forms of art in buildings and in paintings, and humanity has been trying to capture the sense of awe. But Jesus is the one who actually fulfills all of those longings that are already in your heart. You need someone to stand in awe over? Consider this king in Psalm 18. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, the resurrected king, Holy Spirit, the the ruler of our hearts, Lord, we give you praise this morning. In the midst of our distress, You cause us to pray. You hear our prayers. You respond with a mighty rescue. You give us the righteousness of your son. And we can look on your victory and we can give you praise. And for this, we can only give thanks. So Lord, help us to sing with full hearts, knowing that this is true. Through our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.